Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, two banks that collapsed. How can we have major bank failures with billions of dollars at stake? Didn't we learn how to regulate banks from the financial crisis of the Great Recession? <laughs> That was barely 15 years ago. When the regulators stress tested the largest banks last year,、uh, uh, they only looked for the effects of raising interest rates up to two percent. So they asked, if interest rates go up to two percent, is this bank in trouble? They didn't go to three percent. They didn't go to four percent or four and a half. So regulators have to do a better job of anticipating these kind of problems. And we've known about this problem since it was dramatically illustrated by the savings and loan crisis in the 1980s. That's what killed the savings and loan industry. They were、oh. taking in short short-term deposits and investing them in 30-year fixed-rate mortgages, which are carrying a lot of interest rate risk.、Uh, that seems to be getting worse over the years, and that is the banking U.S. banking system seems to be coming more and more of、uh, what you might call a In agricultural terms, a monoculture. A monoculture. Okay. The banks are pursuing very similar strategies,、um, and the reason is we have this financial safety net, and the worst case are banks that are too big to fail. They've almost become public utilities in that、huh. they're regulated more heavily. They're told what they can invest in and what they can't invest in. So banks used to advertise. This was their big selling point. We have a million dollars in capital,、uh, and in fact, they used to paint that in gold paint on the window at the front of the bank before the FDIC、uh, in the 1920s. Let's say. Oh, okay. You can find you can find some old photos of it, but when the FDIC comes along, they scrape off that paint and they put in the FDIC sticker: "Your deposit is insured by the federal government." So that's all they need to reassure people. Now they don't need capital anymore. Did you know that before deposit insurance was enacted, many bankers were dead set against it, especially the managers of well-run banks, who warned the government, saying that you're essentially taxing us to subsidize banks that take too much risks, banks that don't know what they're doing, and they warned the government that this will create a moral hazard problem. Well, we now have the FDIC, and moral hazard is a banking problem. Hey there, news peelers. Today is March thirty first, two thousand twenty three, and this is Adele, the host of the History Behind News podcast. Aren't you tired of the repetitive news on TV and social media? They just go over the same dramatized developments all day long. Do you ever wonder what happened before our news? I mean, how do we get here? They say if you don't know your history, you're bound to repeat it. So while others cover the news, I uncover its history. I call this peeling the history behind news, which we accomplish in weekly conversations with distinguished scholars who delve deep into history to give us their fascinating perspectives from our past. I'm committed to making in-depth history that are researched and written by scholars, enjoyable and accessible to everyone. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink or both, and let's get into it. Silicon Valley Bank is being acquired by First Citizens Bank for a discount. Deposits of about fifty-six billion dollars and loans of about seventy-two billion dollars for just 
$16.5 billion. Not a bad deal, huh? But wait, it gets better. According to the Wall Street Journal, the FDIC has agreed to share any of First Citizen's losses on SVB's commercial loans, and on top of this loss sharing, the FDIC is going to help finance the deal with a five-year, $35 billion loan. There's also a $70 billion line of credit to help cover potential deposit flight. Is it me, or does this not seem like much of an acquisition at all? I mean, the FDIC, that is, us American taxpayers, are taking on all the risk here. And get this, Barney Frank, who was a major proponent on banking regulations after the 2008 financial crisis, was on the board of Signature Bank, which of course collapsed. The irony is that he advocated carbon exceptions for mid-sized banks, such as Signature Bank, out of his law, <laughs> the Dodd-Frank Act. A New York Times podcast, The Daily, has a wonderful episode about this that is titled Barney Frank on his role in the banking crisis. I recommend that you guys listen to it and have provided its link in the detailed caption of this episode. So let me go back to my original question here. How could this happen? <laughs> Didn't we learn from the 2008 financial crisis? On March 21st, Dr. Janet Yellen, our Secretary of Treasury, gave a much-anticipated talk at the American Bankers Association, during which she explained that 2008 was a solvency crisis. What we are experiencing now as a contagion of bank runs. But how do bank runs start anyway? My guest in this episode, Dr. Lawrence White, explains that almost always when runs occur, it's on a bank that's already insolvent. He also explains that we've been here before, that rising interest rates have in the past caused banking crisis. As you gather from the opening trailer of this episode, he has much to say about the impact of the FDIC on our banking system. But it doesn't just leave us there. In the perspective segment of our conversation, we'll talk about an alternative banking system, one without the FDIC. I know, shocking, huh? But maybe not so much. As it turns out, we'd had a system like that before. Once again, we can learn from our history. Dr. White is a professor of theory and history of banking and money in the Department of Economics at George Mason University. He has been a visiting lecturer at the Swiss National Bank and the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. He's a distinguished senior fellow of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics of the Mercatus Center at George Mason University and a senior scholar of the Cato Institute Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. Dr. White has authored many books on banking and economics, including The Clash of Economic Ideas, The Theory of Monetary Institutions, and Free Banking in Britain. He's the editor of The History of Gold and Silver, Free Banking, and other volumes. His most recent book is Better Money, Gold, Fiat, or Bitcoin, which we discuss in this episode. I spoke with Dr. White last week after the Fed raised interest rates by another 25 basis points. Naturally, we talk about the impact of interest and inflation rates and their fluctuations, on our banking system. To learn more about Dr. White and his extensive research and publications, you can visit his academic homepage, the link for which is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So, stay with me as Dr. White and I peel the history behind this news. Dr. White, it is a pleasure to have you on our program again. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. Uh, it's good to be back. 
As you know from our prior podcast conversation, when you and I talked about the history of inflation last year, in our program, we don't cover the news. We uncover the history behind the news. <laughs> but in this case, the suddenness and the complexity of the collapse of the Silicon Valley Bank and what followed behooves us to talk about what happened here. Uh, for example, a question that comes to mind is, was SVB's investment and banking strategy really different than other banks? It was, actually. But there's it a connection was. between... Interesting. Uh, okay. Yes. So SVB became insolvent because of a uniquely... Well, not uniquely, but an unusually bad investment strategy. Uh, and we'll go into the details on that. But uh, the failure was precipitated by its uninsured depositors realizing that the bank was insolvent, that its assets weren't worth enough to pay all the depositors back. So that sets up a scenario where everybody wants to get out first because there's not enough to go around. So they ran on the bank. A uh, couple things were unique about SVB, which is 90% of its deposits were uninsured. Uh, in an ordinary commercial bank, Less than half of its deposits are uninsured. That's a forty percent difference. Okay. That's a so there are very fewer uh, depositors who are, you know, sitting on pins and needles uh, looking for signs of trouble. But the other on the asset side of its portfolio, uh, SVB went very deeply into long-term treasury bonds. So. Most banks have maybe a quarter of their portfolio in bonds, and SVB had 55% in treasury bonds, particularly long-term bonds. Uh, and that's what made them insolvent, because uh, when, the, when interest rates uh, rose, the value of those bonds fell. And so this is connected, actually, to our discussion last year about inflation. Long-term bond yields rise to compensate for inflation. And, of course, we had an unusually high inflation rate last year. Yeah. And so when SVB bought the bonds, they were paying about 2%. Uh, and they bought 10- and 20-year bonds because 2% is more than they could get on short-term bonds. Those were paying maybe two-tenths of a percent. But as interest rates rise, uh, what investors are willing to pay for a bond that's already been issued, a bond that's already been issued has fixed dollar payments that it promises. And the present value of those future dollar payments goes down as the interest rate used to discount them back to the present goes up. So people more heavily discount the future when interest rates are higher. And the yields uh, on long-term bonds went from 2% up to 4%, uh, and that cuts their value by something like a quarter. Uh, and so SVB became insolvent. Their bonds were no longer worth enough if they tried to sell them. To so, I, so I think that's an interesting point that you bring up, and I want to clarify uh, for myself and also for our audience. So I'm just going to attempt to rephrase what you just said um, and, and tell me if I'm correct. Usually, U.S., Treasury bonds, notes, and bills are safe, and they continue to be safe unless we have a default. The reason they're safe against they're safe against default. Yes, yes. In this case, 
the reason SVB ran into trouble is not because somehow the bonds it had purchased, something went wrong with them. No, it's that it was short of cash. It needed to sell something. In this case, it's uh, sort of, it was overweight in US bonds. But guess what? The value of those bonds had dropped. So it was losing money if it, if it attempted to sell those. Am I restating this correctly, Dr. White? That's, that's right. And it's because they were long-term bonds that they carried so much interest rate risk. If they had invested in short-term bonds, they wouldn't have had that risk. On the other hand, they wouldn't have had any earnings. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like but, buying a bu bunch of uh, real estate assets and price of those homes or commercial properties fall, and now they want to sell it, they're going to lose money. It's, it's akin to that. Yes. And I see. In fact, one of the things that makes real estate go up and down is changes in interest rates because those are also long-lived assets. We'll get to interest rates in a moment. What I'm wondering is, is SVB's case similar to Signature Bank and First Republic Bank's troubles that followed almost immediately? It seems most similar to First Republic Bank. So First Republic also has uh, reportedly overloaded on long-term bonds, and that's impaired its net worth. Doesn't seem to be insolvent yet, at least they convinced other banks to put money in it uh, above the insured limit. So they must think that they're going to get paid back. Signature Bank is a little bit of a puzzle. It seems to have been closed because of a run, and the run followed the run on SVB. But whether Signature was already insolvent before the run is less clear. So if, if it wasn't, then it would be a very rare case because almost always... When runs occur, it's on a bank that's already insolvent, but the depositors just woke up to the fact that it's insolvent and they need to get out before other depositors do. If, S if Signature Bank was run upon simply because people thought it was similar to SVB, that would be an unusual case. I haven't seen a breakdown of what its investments were, so I don't know whether it was carrying the same kind of interest rate risk that SVB was, and no reason it should have. The, the thing that people may, thought made them similar was that they were both friendly to cryptocurrency businesses. Yeah. Yeah. But that's, that's not really a source of risk. If, uh, if the bank is solvent, there's no reason having depositors in one industry rather than another uh, makes those deposits more likely to run. So we're talking about investors and depositors in, in these three banks at least two of them that failed. We have SVB first, and then we have Signature Bank. Is there anything happening here in the last two weeks, as far as banking is concerned, that's that could be considered systemic? Well, I don't think the failure of those two banks is going to spill over to other banks. That is, the fact that those banks failed is not itself a problem for other banks. But if the reason that uh, SVB failed, namely it's overloading on long-term bonds is a strategy that other banks have also followed, then those other banks are going to be in trouble. I'm sorry, you so, say, uh, you're saying that SVB's investments in long-term treasury bonds is similar to other banks' investment strategy? Some other banks. We don't some. know how many uh, oh, okay. exactly, but yeah, for banks that followed a similar investment strategy, and it was tempting because the yields on short-term bonds were so low the yields on longer-term bonds were higher. So that's known as playing the yield curve, right? You can yeah. make a profit by borrowing short and lending long, but there's a risk that goes with that, which is that if interest rates go up, 
your assets go down in value much more than your liabilities do. And we've known about this problem since it was dramatically illustrated by the savings and loan crisis in the 1980s. That's what killed the savings and loan industry. They were oh. taking in short, short-term deposits and investing them in 30-year fixed-rate mortgages, which are carrying a lot of interest rate risk. So interest rates go up, and the savings and loans had to start paying 7 8 9% to get deposits. Meanwhile, they're stuck with a portfolio of 30-year mortgages that continues to pay them 5 and 6%. So they bled to death. But that's sort of in a, a cash flow description of the problem. But if you think about it in terms of the bank's balance sheet, uh, the long-term assets need to be marked down to market, uh, especially if the bank needs to sell them. And so the problem can, the insolvency comes faster than just due to the negative income. A bank with a prospect of negative income is already insolvent. So the, there may be systemic results of the way regulators have handled uh, the problem. So they're trying to, regulators decided to cover all the depositors, even the uninsured depositors in Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank in order to prevent an exodus of deposits from banks that are perceived to be similar. So mid-size regional banks, banks like First Republic, because if they don't do that, depositors, uninsured depositors, that is corporate accounts that are there to uh, cover payrolls, that sort of thing. That's why they're above 250000 Those are going to move. Where are they going to move? They're going to move to banks that are perceived as too big to fail. Uh, so you're going to move from a regional bank, let's say, to a Wells Fargo bank, something like that. To one of the big four banks that yeah. already have more than half the deposits. So that would increase... Uh, concentration in the banking industry. You know, we're talking about regulators now. What I want to know is, do you think the Fed is between a rock and a hard place in that, on the one hand, they're trying to fight inflation by raising interest rates? And on the other hand, they're trying to ensure stability of the banking system to prevent a crisis. So does this cause a dilemma for the Fed? In the immediate run, yes. Uh, further tightening puts more stress on banks, especially banks that have interest rate risk because you're raising interest rates in the market. Uh, but in the long run, there's no trade-off. In fact, the, the two are complementary. In the long run, consistently keeping inflation under control enhances financial stability. It's swings in interest rates and swings in inflation rates that undermine financial stability. And, and so I mentioned that a lot of commentators have attributed the rise in interest rates entirely to Fed uh, raising its interest rate target. Yeah, yeah. But if you have a portfolio of long-term bonds, what matters is the interest rate on long-term bonds. And if the Fed is only raising short-term rates, sometimes that has almost no effect on long-term rates. What has killed SVB is a rise in long-term rates, and that's due to the rise in inflation. So the Fed has to keep inflation down to keep long-term rates from rising, which would also undermine the solvency of banks that have overindulged in, the, in interest rate risk. That's a very interesting point that you just made. So the Fed's its, uh, its, its aggressiveness, its activities in raising interest rates doesn't really impact the interest rates of long-term bonds in which SVB was heavily invested. Right. Those are separate issues. Yeah. So if, if the Fed tightening increases the credibility that inflation is coming down, it can actually lower 
long-term rates. And so sometimes when the Fed is tightening, you, you see what's called an inverted yield curve, where short-term rates are actually above long-term rates. Yeah. Is your use of the phrase long-term, in the long run, this is not an issue, um, yeah. do you mean months or do you mean two years or do you mean five years or 10 years? I'm kind of being half cute here asking you to predict, I guess. Um, I guess I mean, you know, uh, over five to 10 to 20 years, people are trying to predict inflation based on pattern of Fed behavior over how long back, how far back do they go, trying to figure out what the Fed's going to do next, probably at least 20 years, because there's a great deal of continuity in Fed policy. And because the Fed itself tries to move gradually, right, it raises yeah. interest rates, although it, it's typically a quarter of a percentage point at a time. But in the last year, they have been more aggressive than that. Yeah, way more aggressive. Um, we'll be back after a short break to talk about prior financial and banking crises and lawsuits against bank executives. We'll be right back. Last year, when our inflation almost reached 8% in February 2022, I spoke with Dr. White about the history of inflation. It's a fun and fascinating talk that takes us back to the 1970s and the 1980s, when home mortgages were 15%. Ouch! And further back to post-World War I, when inflation had 20%. The links for my conversation with Dr. White about inflation in Season 2, Episode 11 is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Dr. White about banks and bank failures. Dr. White, we kind of touched on this in the last segment. Are we now facing another financial or banking crisis? Um, well, I hope not. <laughs> Me I mean, too. I, I hope that uh, SVB was an unusually imprudent bank and that other banks are not in such trouble. But obviously, uh, regulators didn't do a very good job at anticipating the follow-on effects from rising long-term interest rates. And one uh, example of that, I mean, there was an interesting interview with uh, Douglas Diamond, who's the co-author of the Diamond Dibvig uh, paper on bank runs, which is so heavily cited that uh, Diamond and Dibvig won the Nobel Prize last oh, wow. year in economics, Okay, uh, along with Ben Bernanke. There was an interesting interview with uh, Diamond himself conducted by Luigi Zingales. It's on a podcast called Capital Isn't. Capital Isn't. Um, okay. And Diamond was asked, uh, is this an example of a, a Diamond Dibvig bank run that is a, a run that takes place only because depositors are worried about other depositors running? And in which case, if there's no run, there's no problem. Yeah. And Diamond, Diamond said, no. Actually, my model doesn't really apply to this case because this bank was already insolvent uh, and it was the insolvency that made the depositors run. So the question is, how widespread is the this kind of insolvency? When the regulators stress tested the largest banks last year, and this is Diamond explains this in his interview, uh, they only looked for the effects of raising interest rates up to 2%. So they asked, if interest rates go up to 2%, is this bank in trouble? 
they didn't go to 3%. They didn't go to 4% or 4.5%. Which where we are now. Where we are now, or four and three quarters where we are now after this week's meeting. Oh, that's right. Yeah, Wednesday. Yeah. So regulators have to do a better job of anticipating these kind of problems. Uh, if regulators think, oh, treasury bond portfolio, that's perfectly safe, that's a big mistake. Does this feel like it's the beginning of something? Or no, it's really going back to what you and, and Dr. Diamond in this podcast, Capital isn't sort of a cloistered, uh, unique case. Well, I don't think we know yet. Um, somebody who can look at the balance sheets, look at the asset portfolios of other banks, will have to examine them. We do see uh, the market being very skeptical about the health of those banks, though. Yeah, banks, yeah. We see that when bank stocks fall in value, that means investors are anticipating lower earnings at those banks uh, or more problems at those banks, a higher probability of failure at those banks. So that is reason to be concerned. There's an underlying uh, milieu or in environment that we're in. Uh, that seems to be getting worse over the years, and that is the banking U.S. banking system seems to be coming more and more of uh, what you might call, a, in agricultural terms, a monoculture. A monoculture. Okay. The banks are pursuing very similar strategies, um, and the reason is we have this financial safety net, and the worst case are banks that are too big to fail. They've almost become public utilities in that. Huh. They're regulated more heavily. They're told what they can invest in and what they can't invest in. But it gives them the fact that they, they're not going to be allowed to fail means that their depositors are not paying any attention to the risks the bank is taking. They have no incentive to do that. There's no incentive to shop around for a safe bank beyond the assurance that it's too big to fail. You don't actually need to look at their investment strategy. And so those banks have an incentive to take risks in whatever way they can that hasn't yet been prohibited. Right? So in the financial crisis, we saw that a lot of banks had overexposed themselves to real estate. Okay, well, we can learn from that and tell them, don't put so much of your lending into real estate. Well, they can find another risk to take. They can find interest rate overexposure by going long term, yeah. even though that, that creates a problem. Uh, in an environment where interest rates can rise. Well, we can close that off. They have an incentive to find some other way to take a risk in order to get higher returns in good times. And that's rational strategy, given that they don't bear all the costs in the downtimes. So this problem is you know, known as moral hazard. Uh, the financial safety net gives banks an incentive to take on risks in ways that the regulators haven't yet closed. Uh, but the regulators then are trying to catch up. Uh, but it's a, you know, a cat and mouse game. Closing off the risks one by one doesn't really solve the problem, which is the underlying incentives to take risks, to take advantage of the safety net. So I, I, I gather where, where that leads is total control from the top about what banks are allowed to do. And then they become much less entrepreneurial. And um, they become much more uniform. 
your your analogy to banks uh, being almost like uh, public utilities, I I I'm, I presume you said that somewhat in jest, but perhaps not not too far from it. Um, well, when you have a situation where the gains are privatized and the losses are socialized, <laughs> right? <laughs> phrase not original with me. Yeah, yeah. You, you have political pressure to make it symmetric, <laughs> and rather than privatize the losses, which is the solution I would favor, people are going to say, well, let's socialize the gains. Um, let's make all the, all the profits go to the public treasury, which is covering the losses in the downtime. The analogy to public utilities is quite scary because um, public utilities haven't done really well in upgrading and, and modernizing themselves recently and have all sorts of they, troubles with them. And right, regulation exactly. hasn't worked. They're still, um, they have issues. Um We're talking about regulation here, so I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about the regulation in recent times, Dodd-Frank. So we had this massive financial crisis uh, in 2007 to late 2008, early 2009, and Dodd-Frank yeah. comes comes out of that. Dodd-Frank was passed in 2010, and it, it's come back into the news because Barney exactly. Frank turns it out was a board, member of the board of directors of Signature Bank, and he's been complaining <laughs> <I love> it. <laughs> uh, about its closure on the grounds that he says it wasn't insolvent at the time it was closed. So that uh, that would be interesting if true. Interesting. Uh, but the, the Dodd-Frank Act, as you said, was a reaction to the financial crisis uh, passed in 2010, and it's a massive piece of legislation. It was over 2,000 pages, and a lot of What it said wasn't to lay down new rules, but to make up a wish list of new rules. So rather than the legislators specifying in any detail what the rules are supposed to be, an army of lawyers went to work after the act was passed, uh, hashing out exactly what the rules are going to be. Uh, and they have finally finished their work, but it took them almost 10 years uh, to finish all the details. Anyway, it, it when you it say wish list, Doctor White, I just want to make sure. When you say it was, it, it had like a slate of um, wishes, a wish list. Was that yeah. objectives? Was that for uh, let's say FDIC or the Fed or or regulatory bodies to adopt those? Kind of like you know how Congress may come out with a wish list for the EPA to come out with yeah. rules. Is that is is that where it was going? Yes. Okay. So. Uh, It, there were rules for almost all the regulators. The conspicuous exception, given that it was a real estate crisis uh, that tipped off the financial crisis, is there wasn't anything done about Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which had gone into <laughs> I love receivership and are still in receivership. Um, but yes, it, it, it had rules for... Um, that created a, a category called uh, strategically, sorry, systemically important financial institutions. So the acronym was SIFI. Somehow over recent years, it's changed to GSIB, which is a globally systemically important bank. <laughs> institutions that are designated systemically important were to be subject to higher capital requirements and you know, more, more regulatory scrutiny. The other thing Dodd-Frank did was to create the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And that was given lots of uh, 
responsibilities for regulations that were our consumer facing regulations like disclosure requirements on loans and so so forth that used to be enforced by the Fed now they're enforced by the CFPB CFPB the Consumer Financial um, Protection, Protection Bureau. Bureau I'm dying to ask you about how Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac <laughs> got you know got off being um, uh, being part of uh, uh, the Dodd Frank Act. How did that happen? But um, that that'll that'll diverge us too much from our discussion. I think that could be perhaps a podcast itself about the politics of of this act. What I want to do instead, if I may, in the just the last minute of this segment, is you, you know you hear you hear Senator uh, Sanders and and um, other senators talking about how, especially on the Democratic side, how Mr. Trump rolled back Dodd-Frank right. to some extent. Um, Elizabeth first, Warren has, yeah, has been sounding that trumpet. Exactly, yes. exactly, Senator Warren. So first, is this true? And if, if true, to what extent did Mr. Trump do this? So they did change the size of a bank that was to be subject to the uh, higher capital requirements and extra scrutiny. I believe they lowered it for 250 billion. Sorry, they they raised the the threshold from 50 billion to 250 billion. And it does turn out that SVB then yeah. was was no longer in the largest category. But if you ask, did that really matter? Would the regulators have caught the problem at SVB had it been in the larger category? I'm afraid the answer is no. Oh. Because uh, as I mentioned earlier, if we look at the stress testing of the largest banks last year, um, and those are supposed to be subject to the most rigorous tests, as I said, they were only stress tested for interest rates up to 2%. And at 2%, SVB would have been fine. Uh, that that's what the bonds were yielding when they bought them. So yeah. no problem if they continue to yield 2%. But, but even at, uh, I guess the 2% is for the Fed's short-term target. But they, so they, the banks weren't tested for three, four, four and a half percent interest rates. Um, and so it, almost surely they would have missed the problem at SVB, even if it had been tested the same way that the largest banks were tested. So based on what you're saying, which you also mentioned in the prior segment, um, the stress tests that are conducted uh, for bigger banks, they're put through these tests. Those are also based on 2%, right? They were last year, yeah. Yeah, so conceivably leaves bigger banks uh, to financial issues as interest rates go up because they haven't been tested for that, right? Right, so the bigger banks, as far as I'm aware, don't have such... Uh, a large part of their assets in long-term bonds. I see. I see. That makes a big difference. We'll be back after a short break to talk about the history and importance of regional banks. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? 
That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the History Behind News podcast. We rely on your support to continue this program, to continue peeling the history behind our news. Supporting us is easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and other attributions and links. And thank you. Dr. White, uh, I meant to ask this question uh, from you in the last segment, so I'll ask it now. Um, Have bank executives ever been subjects of civil suits or criminal prosecution for bank failures? Uh, It's pretty rare. Uh And it would only be appropriate if they criminally absconded with assets or committed some kind of outright fraud. And there are some cases of that. So Angelo Mozillo, who was the executive of Countrywide Financial, which was a mortgage originator. Yeah, yeah, I remember. He was successfully sued uh, in a civil case and had to pay out a big judgment. Uh, As far as criminal prosecution goes, the only case I can remember is Charles Keating, um, okay. who had uh, savings banks and notoriously uh, convinced a few senators who became known as the Keating Five to plead on his behalf with the <laughs> Savings and Loan Insurance Fund. Um, but he was successfully prosecuted uh, for fraud. His original conviction was actually set aside, but then he made a plea deal where he pleaded guilty to to some lesser charges and he did serve some time for basically and, lying lying about the condition of the bank when he was asking people to invest in it um, and obviously i asked this question because um, um the us government its various agencies are looking into svb's executives and their con- conduct in the last few months um and just well, banks can fail without anybody committing fraud unfortunately yeah, yeah unfortunately yes so, Dr. White, we talked about bank sizes uh, and how uh, most Americans may be shifting their um, deposits into larger banks. And, you know, we're familiar with big name banks such as Wells Fargo, Bank of America, JP Morgan, Chase. But uh, going back in our history, we've had long stretches without big national sized banks, right? Right. Well, we prohibited large banks by prohibited. Interesting. Prohibiting okay. interstate branching. Right? So for a long time, uh, banks were chartered by state governments. Um, so up to the Civil War, with the exception of the first and second banks of the United States, which were special cases, banks were chartered by state authorities. And states would not recognize bank charters from other states. So <laughs> if you were, if your bank was chartered in New York, you couldn't set up branches in New Jersey. The New Jersey authorities wouldn't allow you to do that. And the reason is they wanted to protect the New Jersey banks from competition. Yeah. And the whole chartering system was rife with uh, corruption because it was a favor to get a charter. And so if you didn't have a friend in the legislature, you might have to rent a friend in the legislature to get a bank charter. In the Civil War, the federal government decided to get into the bank chartering business in order to create banks that they could then require to lend money to the federal government. So it was a fiscal measure more than anything else. And these were called national banks 
because they had a federal charter, but they still weren't allowed to branch nationwide. The branching yeah. rules of, of the state they were domiciled in controlled whether they could branch, and states would not recognize banks from out of state. That only began to change uh, in the 1980s when the disadvantages of this system became pretty uh, obvious. In some states, banks were only allowed to have one office. That was called unit banking. And those states had very poorly diversified and undercapitalized banks. And so they had droves of bank failures. Uh, Texas, uh, in the 1980s, when the price of oil went down, something like two-thirds of the banks in Texas failed. Wow. Uh, because they weren't branches of nationwide banks where the f problem in one industry could be absorbed by their doing okay in other industries. Uh, they were very poorly diversified. So everybody saw that nationwide branch banking was probably coming, and states began to make treaties with other states, so-called regional banking compacts, where they said, we'll let banks from your state enter our state if you let our banks enter your state. And the way the entry was allowed was not by just branching, but by you had to buy an existing bank, and that was to protect the charter value of the existing banks. Um, but so we got regional banks or super regional banks, they were sometimes called, like Wachovia, like Nations yeah. Bank. And these regions always excluded New York and California because they were <laughs> intended to let the regional banks grow large enough to withstand competition from the money center banks. Finally, in the 1990s, we got legislation that allowed uh, nationwide branch banking. And so we've had a lot of consolidation since then. Banks have gotten bigger, mostly through mergers, and the number of banks in the country has been shrinking, mostly through mergers, not failures. And we finally got nationwide branch banking. So Nations Bank bought Bank of America, which at that point was only in California. And now we're in a phase where any bank uh, can just branch into a, num a new market if it wants to. And so that actually brought more competition to many local markets where bank entry was uh, restricted. But it's, it's brought about, of course, uh, if you look at the nation as a whole, fewer banks and more concentration of uh, deposits in the largest banks. To some extent, that represents greater efficiency in banking. It's the kind of system we see almost everywhere else in the world uh, that doesn't restrict branching. But it was maybe artificially boosted by the mergers that were arranged during the financial crisis. So the largest bank failure was Washington Mutual. Yeah. And that was purchased by, was it J.P. Morgan Chase? Uh, I think so. I yeah, what, Merrill Lynch was. was uh, go ahead. Yeah, Merrill Lynch was bought by Bank of America. But yeah. So we got these uh, mergers uh, that made the four largest banks even larger, and so today they have more than half of all the deposits. We still have, you know, mid-sized banks, and we still have small local banks. So uh, um, if I may just interrupt you for one moment, you said we still have mid-sized banks and we still have local banks. And as I drive around here in California, I see them. Yeah. What do they do? <laughs> who, who banks there? Uh, people I, who like friendlier service. I'm raising people my hand uh, right yeah. right now. Yeah. People who don't care that much about uh, being able to wire money to London, which is something you can only do at a larger bank. Yeah. That sort of thing. And I think the reason they 
can survive is that they know the borrowers better. So local banks are better uh, positioned to know what are the uh, investments in their region that are likely to pay them back. So they can take advantage of that knowledge. Now, the problem is that regulation is forcing them to follow more uniform procedures that make it difficult to take advantage of that knowledge. So if you're required to make loans based on credit scores rather than on any personal information you have about the borrower, then the advantage of having that local information goes away. It goes back to what you were saying uh, earlier. It sort of kills banking entrepreneurship. That's right. That's a danger of imposing the same uh, regulations on all size banks. And then, of course, there are also paperwork burdens that are imposed on banks, which are a tiny fraction of the operating budget of a large bank, but can be a sizable part of the budget of a small bank. So it's harder for small banks to survive if you know they need lots of lawyers to do their paperwork. What percentage of our banks would you guesstimate are regional and community banks now? Well, so the last figure I saw, the percentage of deposits at the largest four banks was like 55%. And if you add in other huge banks, it goes up to 60 or 65. So the remaining 35% are regional and local banks. Are some of these regional or local banks um, similar to SVB in the following uh, specific uh, way? SVB really catered to the venture capital community. I mean, anyone could go deposit their money, I suppose, but it was really a VC-related founded bank. Um, That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So are other community banks similar to that? For example, um, farmers banks, I don't know, some sort of guild or anything like that. Are those still prevalent? I remember in the 80s, uh, you would see them more often just driving around. I don't, well, you know, I guess living in California in the sort of suburbs, I don't see them often. No, you'd have to go to the uh, San Joaquin Valley. But Central Valley. But actually, farmers banks have not survived well because if you're not diversified beyond agriculture, you're going to have a problem one day where your clients are not going to be able to pay you back because it's a bad year for farming. Uh, so there this is, is almost case. similar to SVB when you have concentrated in one sector. Interesting. It is, sure. And it was, as I said, it was a big problem with unit banks. Um, so if you're a unit bank in Dahlonega, Georgia, where the only, where the major industry is making carpets, if the carpet industry has a bad year, you've probably got a cluster of bad loans. So it, there is a case for diversifying beyond that, but I, SVB was quite unusual in its concentration on a single industry and in, and in having mostly industrial clients. Like I said, they had only 3% insured deposits, which means they had very few retail customers. Yeah. Yeah. Historically speaking, have, and you alluded to this earlier about the Great Recession. What I want to know is, Historically speaking, have financial and, um, I guess, or economic crisis led to formation of bigger banks? Uh, That's a good question. I would say that it has been part of FDIC policy. When a bank fails, they have two options. One is to liquidate the bank and just sell off its assets in the market. 
the second option is to get another bank to buy the failed bank. Mm-hmm. And of course, the auction is in negative numbers. The FDIC has to pay the bank that's acquiring a bank with negative net worth. So whoever will take the smallest stipend from the FDIC to take over the liabilities gets the bank. That so wait, these big option. banks, and so these big banks aren't really buying the failed bank. They're essentially becoming a parking place for them because we taxpayers are paying for that failed bank and sort of handing it over to these bigger banks. We're paying for the deposit coverage. Yeah. Now the, but what I was going to say is that the, this policy tends to favor consolidation and a certain amount of consolidation since we've left this era of banks that aren't allowed to branch across state lines is natural and efficient, but we may have gone too far in favoring uh, mergers over liquidation. Now, the Dodd-Frank Act, one of its provisions was to change that and Hmm. to tell the FDIC, you should liquidate when that's cheaper, when that requires less of a subsidy from the public fisc. Interesting. Uh, Is that a mandate or a suggestion? That's a mandate. That's called least cost resolution. And you're not supposed to rescue an individual institution or make a sweetheart deal the way the New York Fed did in the case of Bear Stearns and AIG. You're only supposed to have programs that are available to all comers. And so we see that in the Fed now saying we will lend a bank money against its long-term bonds that are depressed in value for any bank. So that's a broad-based program. But to make an exception in the case of uh, SVB and Signature, that is to cover all the depositors, not just the insured depositors, they had to say this was a special case. This is a case where if the uninsured depositors took a loss, there would be a contagion effect. There would be a systemic problem caused by that. I see. But they're, they're supposed to do that very rarely. And the threat is that they will do it now even more routinely because these were not huge banks. I mean, SVB, what, what do they say? It was the 16th largest bank. Yeah. Yeah. And the, some people call it the second largest bank failure, but that's not true if you adjust for inflation. So if, if our federal government and its various uh, agencies and institutions start rescuing more banks in the next coming weeks, hopefully we won't have any other failures, but if they do, it goes back to what you were warning us about, moral hazard. Right. Yeah. Let's take a break here. Stay with me and Dr. White as we get into the perspective. The History Behind News podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And remember, don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the History Behind News podcast. Dr. White, uh, last year when we discussed the history of inflation, we also talked about the concept of, quote, free banking system. That conversation, of course, is very relevant now, so I want to revisit it here. What is a free banking system? If you're talking about banking without fees, I know I would love it. (laughs) No, it means uh, a banking system without uh, restrictions, other than, of course, rules against fraud, 
and without privileges. So no restrictions on entry or branching. But to make banks behave responsibly in a system like that, there has to be, you know, no bailouts, no rescues. So uh, there are historical examples of systems that uh, approach that kind of system. Uh Uh, So the, in my dissertation, I studied the banking system of Scotland in the 18th and 19th centuries. Canada had a much freer banking system than the U.S., so it wasn't totally unregulated, but banks were free to branch nationwide, and banks were free to issue banknotes without having to lend the government money and hold the government bonds as a collateral. That was part of the National Banking Acts in the U.S. that made banks unable to provide more currency when the public wanted more currency, which doesn't sound like a big problem, but that's the main reason we had financial panics in the late 19th century. They started when farmers wanted more currency uh, to pay their farmhands, and the banks couldn't issue any more currency, and so the bankers took out reserve money. The The country banks would then pull reserves out of the cities, and the cities would pull the reserves out of New York, and now New York's got a problem. So uh, in a free free banking system, you don't have that problem because banks aren't depositing money in other banks. All banks have access to the financial center and can hold their own money there. But banks are responsible for their own solvency. And in the absence of deposit insurance, uh, banks af- have to be solvent and have to persuade depositors that they're solvent in order to get deposits. So since deposit insurance, banks have reduced the amount of capital they hold. That's the cushion they have for absorbing asset losses. They've reduced their capital from something like 20% down to as low as the regulators will let them get away with. And right now, the official risk-weighted capital ratio is supposed to be 8%. That's the minimum. What you're saying is that in the banking system would be much more because they're on their own? The banking system is much more robust. Yeah. So there are bank failures if a bank is badly managed, but other banks are not managed the same way. Uh, Other banks don't invest in one another. And so there's no reason for a contagion effect. And so that's we see in Canada and Scotland and other examples. uh, Bank failures do not become system wide crises. And I, I used the metaphor earlier that banking has in the U.S. has become a kind of one crop monoculture. Yeah. If you have many banks pursuing many different strategies then you don't have a problem of if one bank fails, they're all in trouble because they're, they're not the same. They try to establish their own reputations and they hold enough capital to convince depositors that they are robust against any particular asset losses. So they may have some bad loans, but it doesn't wipe out the bank. I want to ask some follow-up questions uh, to make sure I understand this correctly. First, Are you stating that under our current system, banks have to invest in one another? For example, JP Morgan will have to invest? No. Okay. Uh, Could you clarify that for me, please? What did you mean by that? Under the national banking system, Uh banks were required to hold reserves, but they were allowed to keep those reserves in another bank. And they would do that in order to get interest on their reserves. I see. Instead of having it in their own. Is that something they continue to do? Uh, no, no, that, that that's gone away. 
also in what you were discussing about um, the uh, free banking system, you said in such a system, there would be no bailouts. But then later you talked about deposit protection, which made me think of the FDIC. So in a free banking system, do you contemplate, those are two different things. A bailout is different than FDIC, quarter million protection. Are you contemplating that in a free banking system, there wouldn't be any FDIC insurance either? That's right. I see. And that's, that often strikes people as incredible. How could that be possible? Yeah. Well, you, <laughs> need, you need to look at some history. The U.S. Huh. didn't get federal deposit insurance until the 1930s. And the U.S. had a uniquely weak banking system. Uh, other countries that had stronger banking systems, even in the Great Depression, they didn't adopt deposit insurance. And it wasn't until the 1960s and 70s that other countries began to adopt deposit insurance. And in many countries, it's had a clearly deletory effect on the banking system because of the moral hazard problem. So deposit insurance actually can cause more bank failures by allowing banks to pursue bad investment strategies without scaring off depositors. Depositors are no longer monitoring the banks and making sure that they're investing the money safely. Now, in our U.S. banking system up until last week, we relied on uninsured depositors to monitor the banks. So banks that were riskier do have to pay more interest to attract uninsured deposits. Exactly, because uh, some of them are institutional and they're savvier in assessing risk assessment. Right, they have corporate the treasurers uh, who yeah. are, are money managers who are supposed to be investigating the risks involved in putting their money in a bank. So that they are shopping around for a safer bank, and that gives the banks an incentive to be safe if they want to attract those kind of deposits. But that's not what, that, that's not what happened with SVB. Right. So if, if we take away that, if we say, oh, no, everybody's insured, and the de no depositors are any longer monitoring the banks. And that leaves us with the regulators alone being cautious or trying to pay attention to what kind of shape the bank is in. And they've been, you know, not doing a good job of it. They've been yeah. asleep at the switch in too many cases. So, uh, but what about ordinary depositors? Can they shop around for a safe bank? Somebody tweeted the following metaphor the other day. Well, you can't expect people who have no uh, connection with the academic world to know that uh, Princeton is a better university than bi-directional state university. And yeah. so they're just going to send their kids to a terrible school because they don't know any better. That's not well, true. No, that's not true. Obviously not true. Yeah. You don't have to be an expert to know that a bank has a reputation uh, for being soundly run, conservatively run. And of course, it's in the interests of banks, especially in a world without deposit insurance, to reveal enough information to allow people to confidently make that judgment. So banks used to advertise, this was their big selling point, we have a million dollars in capital. Uh, and in fact, they used to paint that in gold paint on the window at the front of the bank. But no, I, I don't remember this. When was this? The 70s, 80s? When? Before the FDIC, in the 1920s, let's say. Oh, okay. You can, find, you can find some old photos of it. But when the FDIC comes along, they scrape off that paint and they put in the FDIC sticker. Your deposit is insured by the federal government. 
So that's all they need to reassure people now. They don't need capital anymore. And so they hold less capital, uh, as little as they can, because the it's, it's costly to them. But the FDIC wants them to hold capital now because the FDIC is out of pocket if the bank fails. So it, used, it was until last week that it was the FDIC and the uninsured depositors who were minding the store. If the uninsured depositors aren't doing it, then we're putting all our eggs in the FDIC basket, which doesn't seem prudent to me. Anyway, uh, ordinary customers could shop around for a safe bank either by reading the opinions of people who know. So people shop around when they invest in a mutual fund. Right? They, they read somebody's opinion about which are the safe mutual funds or which are the yeah. are, are likely to get you a higher return but involve higher risk mutual funds. It doesn't take you know, a lot of expertise to favor a safe bank over an unsafe bank. If the financial press is doing its job, then they'll report on the banks that are you know, not safe. You said you uh, have written your dissertation on this free banking system, and you've you and I have talked about it in the past, and you have uh, talked some papers on it. How much currency does this have? Is this just uh, academics, scholars such as yourself that talk about it, or have you heard um, government officials or major U.S. bankers actually think about this? Before deposit insurance was enacted, a lot of bankers were against it, especially the managers of well-run banks. And they warned, they said, look, you're going to tax us to subsidize fly-by-night banks, risky banks, banks that don't know what they're doing. There's going to be a moral hazard problem. Once deposit insurance was passed, banks adjusted. They adapted to the new regime. They said, okay, now we have an incentive uh, to take more risks, and we can learn to do that. And you find very few bankers today. Uh, maybe John Allison of BB&T was the last example <laughs> of bankers who take a look at the whole system and say, you know, the system is not in good shape because of these uh, moral hazard problems. Interesting. Um, but uh, I think people have become aware in the last two weeks of the moral hazard problem more than they were. Because it's hard to explain why SBB would pursue such a risky strategy. Although in their case, it was not prudent because they had so many uninsured depositors. So maybe that still is a puzzle because they should have had the incentive to do something safer. Especially such a sophisticated bank and its bankers were also, I think the CEO of SBB was also a board member in the San Francisco Fed. Uh, yeah, I think that's the case. So you would think that they would have seen this coming. We've talked about banking in this episode, so I would be remiss, uh, Dr. White, if I didn't ask you about your latest book, which is titled Better Money, Gold, Fiat, or Bitcoin. I think your book is very much relevant to banking news now, particularly since Signature Bank, which also collapsed, as we discussed, was heavily invested in crypto currency, which Bitcoin is is, is, a, is a part of. So um, tell right. us about your book. Okay. To, to be clear, Signature Bank wasn't buying Bitcoin, but they were lending to businesses that were facilitating Bitcoin. Um, so oh, okay. Loans, That's a big difference. All, okay. Yeah. All their deposits and their loans are in dollars. Okay. Uh, so the, the book is more, again, the title is Better Money, Gold, Fiat, or Bitcoin, uh, out now from Cambridge University Press. Uh, it's more about monetary 
regimes than it is about banking. So it's, it's making a head-to-head comparison between our current regime, which is a fiat money regime. That is, the money we have is not backed by anything. Yeah. It's money by decree, where fiat is a fancy name for a decree, versus the classical gold standard. And I do talk about the complementarity between a gold standard and a free banking system. If you're on a commodity standard, you don't need a central bank to issue a fiat money, uh, and therefore you don't need a central bank. What do you mean commodity standard? I didn't follow that. A, a gold standard or a silver standard. Yeah, okay, okay, got it. Where the, where the money uh, is also something useful as opposed to a fiat standard where the money doesn't have any function other than serving as money. When you say fiat, in this case, our dollars are backed by our economy, right? The good faith of our economy that we're well, going to pay back a, our debt. Only in a very vague sense of backed. Our dollars are not redeemable for real assets. That's what backing means in a narrow sense. So you in the sense of you can't go being to being supported by our economy, uh-huh. sure. The healthier the economy is, the the more their goods and services we have on sale or for sale, uh, the stronger the dollar is. Uh, I see. But the strength of the economy in no way prevents the Fed from issuing as much money as it wants. Yeah. And so it, it in no way prevents inflation from going to 9%, uh, as we've seen. Yeah. And then, then the third leg of the comparison is between the gold standard and, and cryptocurrency. Uh, in particular, Bitcoin, because that's the leading crypto and the the one that's the only serious candidate to actually become a monetary standard that is to be used for buying goods and services. At the risk of spoiling yeah. it, do you reach a conclusion which one is better? My conclusion is that a gold standard is the most attractive um, unless you have a really well-run fiat standard, and most countries don't. Right, So the the stability of the purchasing power of the gold standard hasn't been matched in practice by fiat standards. It could, in principle, be matched if the fiat standard were very well run, but we haven't seen that in practice. And then Bitcoin is just too volatile, and the volatility of its purchasing power is built into the design because the design of Bitcoin is one where the quantity doesn't respond to any events, doesn't respond to an increase in the demand to hold Bitcoin. And so that means all the pressure is on the price to go up or down if there's a relaxation of demand, rather than the quantity changing to accommodate changes in demand the way it does in the long run under a gold standard, because gold mines will produce more gold if the value of gold goes up, and that'll stabilize the value. If we were to adopt a gold standard, go back to pre-Nixon's days, pre-1940s, I guess even, do we have enough gold to support a gigantic economy like ours? Do we have the, yeah. like the physical bullion or the ability to mine this much gold? We actually have that much gold uh, right now. We do. If, oh, we, okay. Yes. So the, the U.S. government has not sold any of the gold it held back when it was under the gold standard. It's at least as far as we know, it's in Fort Knox and some other depositories. And if you evaluate it, if you price it at the current price of gold, which is today about $2,000, yeah, there's enough gold to provide a reasonable reserve ratio against bank deposits. And that was the historic function of gold, that it served as a reserve against banks. Uh, but there is a caveat to that. Uh, that was true before uh, quantitative easing. So we need to go back to a system of scarce reserves 
such as we had before 2008, where bank reserves were 800 billion, whereas today they're closer to 8 trillion. And that's, but they're so large because banks are happy to hold reserves when the Fed is paying interest on reserves. Yeah, yeah. So we've changed the monetary regime to, uh, in a way that may make it harder to uh, reconvert the dollar to gold. But if we were able to reverse the QE programs, and it can be done without causing a, you know, a major deflation, we have enough gold at the current price, so no inflation or deflation is necessary in the transition back to a gold standard to back the dollar. Uh, with reasonable reserve ratios. That's also true of Europe. They have, they've kept their gold. There are a few countries that have sold off their gold, uh, and so they'd have to buy it back. But there are a lot of private investors who hold quasi-monetary gold, that is, coins and bullion and ETFs yeah. backed by bullion. Uh, they, in fact, private investors now hold more gold than central banks do. So the central banks that needed to buy gold back could buy it from the private investors, and if you're on a gold standard, there's no reason to hoard gold uh, as an inflation hedge because you're holding gold when you hold dollars. Yeah. Holding a yeah. claim to gold. Uh, presumably, you could you could literally go to the bank, give them $10 and get $10 of gold metal back. Yep. That was, that, that was the system up until the 1930s. So in the 1920s, you could literally go back and go to a bank with $1,000, which was a lot of money back then, and get $1,000 yeah. on gold. They would literally give you that. Yeah. They oh, would give you $50, $20 gold coin. Interesting. Dr. White, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. Thank you very much, Dr. White. This was oh, very, very interesting. Sure. Um, Thanks. I, um, I paused for a moment because I have this book. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At History Behind News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at History Behind News, we peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments on Twitter or sending an email to Adele at historybehindnews.com. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with History Behind News, a history podcast for our news. <music>